This is Driven by Data, the podcast. Welcome to Driven by Data, the podcast, brought to you by Orbition Group and hosted by me, Kyle Winterbottom. Orbition Group is delighted to bring this podcast series, which boasts some of the most high-profile data, analytics, and AI thought leaders from across the globe. Each episode details the journey to the top of our industry's most respected leadership figures, while bringing unique insights drawn from first-hand experience on the industry's most trending topics, told in order to share knowledge, experiences, and ideas to inspire, innovate, and give back to the global data and analytics community. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode. Welcome to Driven by Data, the podcast. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Lauren Walker, who is the Global COO and Head of Digital Transformation at Dentsu International. Lauren, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. It's really exciting to be here, uh, especially on the week of the Data IQ 100 with so many amazing other podcast interviewees uh, that you've spoken to. So it's, it's really, it's a lovely week to join you today. Good, good. Well, I'm, I'm very glad that you're glad to be here um, and stole my thunder because I was going to lead with the data IQ thing. So oh, yeah, sorry. To, <laughs> I'm joking, not to worry. So look, um, we'll jump into that in a second because I think that's hugely important and especially since, um, you know, your longevity in the data IQ 100, that's always something that I like to, to touch upon. But I guess before we, we get to that, give us a, a bit of an introduction into your background and journey to date. Yeah, I think the the one thing that is always exciting is that I started my kind of data career without really knowing it in in the White House, right? And my political science and and survey research, uh, it kind of rustled up an excitement in me to, I'm going to change the world. Uh, (laughs) And so the the job in the White House was phenomenal. And actually, we worked really hard to to make an administration that looks like America. So we actually did do some data crunching to to make sure that as we brought people into the different, you know, um, roles and responsibilities in the White House and the government agencies, that we had a great cross-section of thought, of gender, of, of views. So that was a good way to start my career. But then, of course, it was also the time of the hanging chads. I know not every British person would know what that is. But with the last election we just had, we, we every now and then we have these interesting elections in America. So long story short, Gore wasn't elected president. Um, and so my kind of political ambition put it on hold and said, let me go into the private sector still around data. So I spent um, a few years in a company that spun out of Equifax called ChoicePoint that's now owned by LexisNexis. And it, was a, it gave me a great appreciation for how you actually build identity. And so back in the day, there wasn't really, back in the day, I sound so old. Uh, <laughs> back in the day, there wasn't the Facebook or the Googles for all the consumer information. You had to literally go to City Hall. You had to look at bankruptcy liens and judgments. You looked at sometimes physical documents um, of pages of telephone numbers. And so all that kind of stuff was really interesting. And then I was working with so many people who had MBAs that I decided, I think I like one of those. I, I love school. So I went back to school, but I also focused on marketing because it's really that, that I, I began to realize that poli science Spanish was a great degree, but marketing was really kind of like, let's say my business calling. So I went uh, to MBA school and then I joined IBM. And so IBM was amazing because it's a company that has so many different career paths you can take. Um, And I was fortunate enough to work in the information management division, which little did I know like how important data would be to our world um, when I made that choice back in 2006. So during those 10 years, I pretty much 
thought about and, and worked with clients and internally on M&A on any possible way you could think about data. Like, how do you monetize it? How do you organize it? How do you cleanse it? How do you mask it? How do you put it into a Hadoop versus an MPP, blah, blah, blah. So it was phenomenal. And it spanned five years in the US with that and then five years in Europe. Um, and then kind of got to the moment where I saw that CDO title and that CDO responsibility really starting to grow. And I thought, I reckon I want to be one of those. You know, I think I could do that. And I had kind of my last role at IBM, I was working with the weather company that IBM had acquired, but became really aware of the amount of data that they had access to and were analyzing. So the location data, the, the consumer data that you could get from a phone and also people's habits of who's a frequent flyer, who's not, you know, who's a snowbird and goes to Florida and the, and the, you know, it was so many interesting things. And it was then again around, like I did at choice point, what are the privacy ramifications? You know, how should we, or should we not use this data? And we we're working with a lot of the Watson technology then. So I did a couple data deals, one with Axiom. Uh, we worked on one with Experian. I also was looking to do one with Market and, and Thomson Reuters at the time, because it was very clear to me that it was companies that had platforms that took the raw material data in and then pumped it back out as insights within an application, ideally, that was for that particular data asset, boom, they were going to go crazy. So that's where Octo Telematics, I still tip my hat to those guys, that Italian company, genius what they did. Very, very honed in on how do I use the cloud to get telematics data to help insurers understand if people are claiming you know, the right claim, but also yep. what is the G-force if the sensors tell us this. So that was super cool. And then I got a call from a recruiter to go to Dentsu to be their chief data officer. And Nigel Morris was the chief strategy officer and running EMEA at the time. And the thing that was cool about that is I basically said, no disrespect to the people who are CDOs in IT, but that's not me. <laughs> Give me a revenue number. I would like to monetize the data talent as well as you know the technology that you work on on behalf of your clients and also own because agencies do so much in programmatic in-house. Um, and also using Google tech and Facebook tech, I, I thought that would be a phenomenal place to go. So did that for, you know, two and a half, three years, and then moved into the COO position where I still retained my kind of data um, capacity, um, but then started looking at the internal data to help the company have better business insights. And so that's when I was the COO of EMEA um, and then COO of digital transformation. And the, the real focus for both of those was around how do we get the right client data into Salesforce so that our growth marketing team can feed the data in and our client teams and solution teams can use that data to actually you know, make sure that the, the deals which are going to be good for us and good for the client come to fruition. Yep. Okay. That makes sense. Uh, a fantastic journey, you know, talking about the White House and politics and back to, <laughs> back to, back to business school and uh, IBM and out of interest, was it complete luck that you chose to work in the information management unit of IBM or did you, was that kind of a, a conscious choice because you could see what might be happening? Uh, I wish, I wish I could see what was happening. Um, <laughs> no, it's pretty much, I had an offer in WebSphere, which is middleware. And back then middleware was like hot stuff. People yep. were like, go work for Sandy Carter and middleware. It's amazing. Um, and then Tom Inman, who was running kind of information management and very much was talking about, he did, he did a good soft sell, hard sell with me, trying to convince me like information management data, you've been there, you know what it can be. Um, and he he had some really great ideas about how we were going to really start to bring information into industry kind of like solutions. 
Yep. So yeah, it was a yeah. So I, I don't know. I he just he, he pulled at the right heartstrings and mental <laughs> strings, you know. Uh, but I think in some ways the real accident happened when I left the White House and was looking for a role in private sector. Not really. I was like, what? What do I do? Um, and there was a role basically in like sales intelligence at Choice Point, um, and I got that, and I worked on basically RFPs for Choice Point because of my government contacts. Yep. And then from there, my boss saw incredible talent in me and said, hey, I'm going to have you do like marketing and strategy. And then I actually ended up being promoted above him, which is, I think, the most amazing boss ever who basically, you know, promotes (laughs) someone who's, you know, under. So he just set a great example for me of you always never, never, like always hire high performing teams. They always have high performing teams, but give people under you, you know, the, the chance to, to fly and, and know when, you know, you, you just need to put yourself in where you are. Yeah, absolutely. Great message. So I guess, so right now at Dentsu, what, um, for, for people that don't know Dentsu, just give us a bit of a, an overview of the business and what it involves and, you know, okay. who it is. So Dentsu is one of the largest uh, agencies, networks, holding companies, uh, you know, different different words there in, in the um, media and advertising space. So we have a Japanese parent called Dentsu Inc., which is really phenomenal. Uh, the work that they do um, across the board, across creative um, media, data tech is, is really cool. Um, and, you know, they're very involved in the Olympics. So there's some really cool events that we do um, that that most of the world will see, whereas other things maybe stay more in Japan. Um, Dentsu acquired a couple key companies along the way. So Aegis was a big one. That was about five, six years ago now. That's a, a major agency across EMEA uh, for the most part and, and some other parts of the US and America. So that's kind of your Cara brand is there, Visium, iProspect. Um, and then there's also a brand called Isobar, which people may know about, which is kind of around creative experience uh, powered by data tech. And then we acquired another company called Merkle, um, which I'd known, funny enough, from IBM, but also from when I was at ChoicePoint because they competed with Axiom quite a bit. So they really came out of that database CRM direct mail side. Um, and Dentsu saw a huge opportunity in where the marketing was going um, and personalization and direct-to-consumer to have that kind of asset as, as part of the Dentsu family. So I think that acquisition happened right before I joined so in 2016. Nice. So it's, uh, it's, it, yeah, it's a, it's a company of around, I think around 40,000 people now um and it's yeah it's pretty big so yeah, fairly and sizable. i have to say some of my favorite accounts just so people kind of have an idea of what what are the accounts that Dentsu works on so png is a huge account for us uh general motors is, is another big one ab and bev so budweiser corona um i worked on that one personally and then vodafone's another great client so really some and lvmh is another client for us in some some markets so really interesting time um coming from ibm right where it's all about the back office data tech and really moving into the front office of data has been absolutely exhilarating yeah that's a really interesting transition i guess so obviously you mentioned before about the data iq 100 um which for anyone listening is effectively the most 100 influential people within data across the uk i think um so and you told me offline you'd been in that list since 2014 which was that when it was first kind of kicked off it can't have been much longer after i think i think it is because back back then i i was in like i think like an ibm data growth role or something like that um yeah so i was looking back in my kind of in my own linkedin saying oh my god wait a minute is this for real so yeah it's it's a complete honor 
but I think I've also been able to um, be very on, I don't know, on point in always trying to be at the tip of the spear. And so some of the things I, I talk about with the Avanta team that, that it's like a, a part of Gartner that does these CDO events is I really feel like it's my personal mission <laughs> to help people realize that the CDO career path in many ways, I think the CDO gets to a point, but then there's still these roles that are have been around for like, feels like a hundred years, right? So the CEO role has been around forever. The CFO role, the, the general counsel, the COO, right? There's certain roles that like companies know what they are. And I feel like the struggle we've had with CDO is it's still very young in what it is. It it's, has kind of very federated um, societies and federations of, of professionals. And because data is in everything, as is digital, it's like the data digital people ultimately, I think should be running companies, should be COOs, should be CMOs. So I feel like at some point, the CDO title is, is what you are anyway. And then you then put on your next superhero cape, which is, okay, I'm now CEO, I'm now CFO. So I really, really believe that people should not feel that, you know, the pinnacle of your career in data is a CDO. You keep going because mm -hmm. everyone needs to have that background to really run a company and, and to I mean, not everyone wants to run a company, but I think to, to kind of influence how companies change and become more data-driven is really critical. Yep, yep. I think it's a really interesting point because there's so much debate in the industry at the moment around that CDO role. And if you look, you know, the comparison between the number of CDO roles and I guess what I would classify as genuine CDO roles um, and the amount of data leadership figures we have is is huge right the disparity is is huge um so you know hopefully that's only going to go one way and there's going to be more of these roles open up which then open up bigger you know big, bigger roles further down the line um so let's jump into this then obviously digital transformation um in your job title lauren so um you know ho hopefully you'll be able to give us a bit of insight into this but i guess something that has been ongoing for for a, for many years now, really, right? Obviously, I think um, COVID has has done done good for a lot of businesses in terms of trying to you know expedite on on that that journey. I, I guess for a lot of businesses that I guess more traditional in nature um, that were probably lagging behind in that department and you know may may rely on footfall as their main revenue stream. Obviously, COVID has now put you know put put kind of a a nail in the ground to that and now everyone's having to look at new ways um in terms of how they're going to you know be seen be heard how they're going to continue to drive the business forward and, and stay ahead um i guess given everything that's gone on what does digital transformation look like now moving forward as, as far as you're concerned yeah no you've you've made so many good points that if you're in a marketing role, right? Or you're looking after consumer data. This probably is closer to mind to you than other parts of, of the business. Because if we went from a point where, especially in all the work we do in the advertising marketing space, you're trying to figure out how do I get people to come into my store? And once they come in, how do I get them to buy something? And there used to be a matter of, okay, as long as I'm near the tube station, as long as I'm in it, you know, for Tesco, a big box location with big parking lots, you know, 
what is the way I can kind of optimize where I am so that people come into my shop. But then again, the experiences of like the Abercrombie and Fitch store, like the Nike town experience, there's so much to be said for how much money is spent on making that experience so unique and so connected to the brand promise that a brand is making to you. So when COVID hit, it was like, oh my God, the high street, which everyone had said was coming to a close, literally closed. So all of those companies who depended, I mean, JD Sports is a great one. All the companies depended on that footfall. Clark's is another one. I buy a lot of my kids' shoes there. You know, it's, it's, it's like, it's right in town. It's quite easy. They can put it on. So all these stores who didn't have a really good e-commerce presence were really in trouble. And so the ones that had invested, but not only invested in the platform, because that's kind of like the easy part. Again, it's the tech, but what's the people in process and the partnerships that make that possible. So you think about the fact that, um, I mean, many of us here in, in, in the UK, right? You go to Amazon, right? So at the end of the day, you're, you're, you're kind of eyeballs for buying. Mm-hmm. They're going to be on Google because you're doing a search for something. Then you're going to probably buy it on Amazon, right? And then you're going to talk about how you bought it on Facebook or TikTok in some sort of dance. <laughs> so, so all of a sudden, all of the eyeballs that used to walk by the street, the high street, uh, or even maybe be willing to go on to, I know I have a strong brand relationship with John Lewis, right? I, I really love that brand. It got me through a lot of um, kid times. The, the Waitrose love it. <laughs> you know, I also <laughs> love Little at the same time like, for different reasons, right? But I think it's quite amazing how if Amazon can literally get it to me tomorrow, at least Waitrose or John Lewis is, you know, again, it's a footfall. It's a connection. I can get something there. So I think what's become really important about digital transformation now is it's not just about, do you have a website? What is that experience like? Does it deliver on the brand promise that people felt when they were in your store? Does it need to? Because maybe it doesn't. But on the other side, what is your strategy to deal with selling through Google, selling through Instagram? Because Shopify has become huge for all these merchants, right? Who are getting destroyed by Amazon because of margins and just pressure and scale. Shopify is now doing a big, big booming business. But Nike and other brands who again have, or maybe even Under Armour for some cases, but the Nike is, is a better example. These companies have really spent a lot of time to make it a more experienced web commerce feeling. And even think about it when you, I mean, as you listen to the podcast here, folks, think about when you go into a website and how many filters is it? Does it have the right size? Do you know what color, you know, ochre is? I don't know. Just call it green. You know, like that, that's what, then you can give me some other stuff. So for those of you in data as well, I, you know, my MDM time was working on product hierarchies where you had Stibo and all these other kind of, and hybris. So these companies that would organize, you know, product hierarchies and, uh, hierarchies and the data and the colors. So again, these all become fundamental to that user experience now. So it's, it's data people like this is our moment. <laughs> like, you need the data in the right way for the right experience in that digital, digital platform. Yeah. Honestly, you'd be gobsmacked the amount of podcasts that have been recorded and that have been interrupted by the doorbell from, from Amazon through over COVID. Um, <laughs> it's no wonder that Jeff Bezos has just been able to retire. Cause I think my wife single-handedly uh, funded him, but, um, but yeah, a, a different story for, for another time. So obviously You've got, you touched on a few things there that really interest me because there's, you know, there's brands there that have, uh, you know, a great reputation. They have a great brand. They're well-known. People are always going to buy from them. Um, The way they operate is just going to have to change. 
What about the lesser businesses um, from a brand perspective? That is, that you know, they they might not have as strong as a brand name, and therefore, you know, the the amount of people that want to you know actively go and seek them out is is fewer. And then also, typically, those brands also have lesser web presence, right, and digital presence. What's going to happen to those brands? Are they are they in real danger? Do you think? Because obviously, you know. For me, like you mentioned, Nike, okay, great brand. If I'm going to buy a pair of football boots or running shoes, it's probably going to be Nike, right? I'll go out of my way to buy Nike. But if it wasn't, then, you know, I might just go on Amazon and see what they have or whatever other platform, right? But so, so what's going to happen? What, what, it fascinates me, this stuff. Like, what, what do you think is, is going to happen to these brands that, you know, just that the lagging behind the digital? footprint and they're lagging behind in the brand footprint yeah they they pretty much have to decide are they going to is their entire are are they essentially going to seed their own interaction with the consumer right especially for the companies that are let's say retailers as well as make something because they're the ones who i think have them have the decision to make right if you're just making beer or you're making um plates or you're making something that is, I don't want to say like commoditized because that's not fair to the, to the beer companies or to the plate manufacturers, but there's, there's kind of um, the differentiation is in the brand and the experience and, you know, Corona beach in a bottle. I mean, that's what I've been trained to, to believe. And so every Cinco de Mayo and every time I'm at a, you know, sunny <laughs> beach side, I'm like, where's my Corona with the lime? It's just yeah. that, that my brain is wired to think that. So we have those types of things, but if you think about some of the, some of the retailers, they're going to have to decide am I going to just kind of seed control and say Amazon is the gateway to the eyeballs. And so I'm going to take that money I would have used on my digital front office, or at least my, you know, e-commerce experience. And I'm actually just going to focus on making really awesome product. And I'm going to work really hard to take that marketing money and make sure I'm at the right, you know, location in each of those distribution kind of channels, because it's no longer trying to distribute to the high street store it's like, I need to get it to someone's house or to some warehouse. So there's a lot more of the logistical stuff that comes in. And I know with some of the clients that we talk to, they're discussing the, it's the last mile. That's the hardest part, right? You can get it to a warehouse, but then how can you get it there fast enough to the, to the client? And I do expect we'll see a lot of companies really selling through TV shows. So, you know, you'll be watching something on Netflix. You'll be watching something on, I think it's Amazon Twitch or something like this. And they'll be almost in the credits. Did you like what someone wore in Bridgerton? Because you go into like a Victorian party. <laughs> Do you like what someone wore in Lupin, which is, I think, something that's on Netflix right now? More likely, it's going to be more like the sitcoms probably, right? Or for that matter, there's so much live TV with, with BBC, with these you know contestants or Channel 4. Maybe there's some celebrity that shows up on a talk show on Graham Norton or on something else. And you're like, I really like that outfit. You know, I'd like that or a copy of it because fashion is one of those things that if you're not leaving your homes, you're going to see people wearing things like I want to buy that click. Okay, you bought it. And that's why Amazon. It's crazy. But think about it. Amazon Prime. It's in your TV. They also have a catalog of things you can buy behind it and crazy logistics. So I don't know how many people have thought through the fact that Amazon literally could be your everything. I had a tremendous experience. I mean, Amazon Prime, so as I said, you know, we, we have shipments turning up pretty much daily, but I, I had to buy something for work a couple of weeks ago. I can't even remember. I think it was a, 
a new rucksack for uh, to carry a laptop in. Um, and I ordered it at 11 a.m. and it was at my front door by 3 p.m. It's crazy, that isn't wow. it? It's crazy. Um, so I guess we're, we're starting to move into the realms here of how can companies become front of mind, especially companies that you know were front of mind because they had a lot of presence you know from a location standpoint and people would walk past and and see it all the time and that is you know starting to dwindle i'm sure it'll rise as we move back to a a slightly more part remote working situation whenever this whole thing you know starts to to come to an end but um advertising's always been important it seems like now it's going to be more important than ever for these brands to keep front of mind and keep pushing their products and services and experiences um where how does that all kind of tie together from from your perspective in terms of advertising and you know what these companies are doing in terms of how they operate and the models they're they're using i think that the big thing that we're going to see especially in the well let's just take the fact that one of the few places we can go is the grocery store the supermarket right but there's still a lot of people who now have gone digital right? So they're doing their Tesco, their M&S through Ocado, they're doing their Waitrose, they're doing the Sainsbury. So, I mean, I see trucks all around my neighborhood on a regular basis and people are just like, okay, you know, all those it kind of inhibitors to someone else's picking out a vegetable that's going to be bruised or whatever the case may be, right? So people are kind of accepting, all right, that, that's, but people still go to the grocery store, right? So there's still like this, this kind of like mix in, in what's happening, but if that's that area, think about the people who, and again, this is getting into like my CP land, uh, consumer goods land. So back in the day when I was in IBM, we were working with Kroger, which is, I think, similar to Sainsbury's in some ways. And so they're like, the whole battle right now is Heinz wants to be on this shelf and they want to have three Heinzes across, right? They want to have the most. So whatever other you know, um, ketchup there is, or I think it's tomato sauce here. I get it confused sometimes still. Um, You know, they only should have one. We want three. So we're going to pay for like three spaces on the shelf. Well, guess what? That's now in a digital environment. So think about when you type in backpack rucksack into Google, what happens? You're getting a list of uh, hits that have been kind of paid for, because that's what we do in, in, you know, in, in uh, performance marketing. And in some cases, you also have pages that just have the word lots of times. So it also gets up to the, the higher bit, you know, in, in a, maybe a free yep. search. So think about the digital experience you have on Tesco, on Sainsbury's, on Ocado, on Waitrose. What products are now being recommended to you? That, that is, you know, that is marketing at its best, but now we're almost getting into biddable locations on your digital grocery. I don't know if people are doing that yet, right? But I, I would be shocked if it's not around the corner, if they're not already doing it in the US with walmart.com. Because yep. walmart.com started a few years back where they're literally selling like Amazon everything. And they've got deals with a bunch of big distributors, Procter & Gamble, to make sure that theirs is the um, item you see. So to be a small brand, you know, what's happened recently, I was talking to a friend of mine and he was talking about um, gourmet dog food. So, you know, in the lockdown, people aren't going on vacation. So like, all right, I'll love the dog food. You know, I'll get this gourmet <laughs> dog food that comes with a little, you know, song and dance and, you know, whatever, a little cuddly toy. And so there's now subscription dog food services. So it's like, it's almost like some companies just opted out completely of the grocery store. And they're just saying, I'm just going to do a subscription model. 
and they have an Instagram channel for the dogs. I mean, it's very interesting. And that's a whole experience, right? That's kind of really grown out of lockdown. So I think rather than kind of talking about the whole thing, it's just people listening, just think about, oh my God, how things have changed. So you have the battle over shelf space is now the battle over um, uh, digital space. So that that's that's going to be the next area for um, the, the goods that we buy through the channels that we buy it. That's how they'll be yep. traveling it out. Absolutely. So I guess the, the whole, you know, the whole advertising space, right, is about brands trying to put the right types of products in front of the right people, you know, whether it's digital or, yeah. or not, you know, that's, that's always been the concept, I guess. And as far as the organizations themselves go, that's obviously having, you know, acquiring, storing, having the right customer data so that they, you know, effectively can convert more, right, by having the right type of information. Um you, you touched on something when we spoke offline, which I guess triggered this whole podcast episode, which um, I guess kind of blew my mind a little bit because I'd not really thought about it. Um, and I guess if I've not thought about it too much, I'm sure there's a lot of other people that haven't really. But you're you, like the data man. Come on. Yeah. Now, you're <laughs> um, but so, so you're, te- you're telling me about big tech companies and how they're positioning themselves and what organizations maybe starting to do and maybe the ones that aren't are probably going to get left behind really. So I don't want to spoil you, your story, but, um, but talk, talk us through that about, you know, we're talking about the Googles and the Facebook of this world, right. right? And you touched upon it previously before around, you know, you search on Google for it, you buy it on Amazon, you speak about it on Facebook and you make a video about it on TikTok, And, you know, so there's a whole experience and life cycle of what, what's, what's going on. But I guess from an organizational point of view, how these, companies can go and get that right data to be front of mind, to have, you know, allow their customers to have that experience to keep brand high and all of that type of stuff. Talk us through that little kind of concept that that you kind of were telling me about. Yeah, I think the, the important thing that I've seen, and again, I feel so fortunate to have, ha- you know, wearing the data lens on one side, the, the technology lens on the other, but now that really deep media marketing lens. And you think to yourself, a lot of companies, uh, especially um, ones that have consumer data and have had it, that did direct mail, that have a one-to-one relationship with their customers. So banks are a good one. Telcos are a good one. Most retailers, you know, boots with your loyalty card that now you have as an app, right? There's yep. been a lot of work by those companies to get really close to each one of us to say, who are you? You know, what's the lifetime value of the relationship? Who else is in your household that might also buy this product or what's the next, you know, circle of, of who you are. So it's huge investment in the Teradata warehouses in the Oracle databases, all that kind of stuff, the MDMs. And so I'd say that's where I spent a lot of my career in the, in the shift kind of from, um, from IBM into the, into Dentsu, there had been a huge pickup in the um, Salesforce and Adobe because there was a move from kind of on-prem into the cloud applications. And so you look at Salesforce and Adobe and, and both of them are quite incredible for marketeers, right? But there's also loads. If you look at that chief MarTech like landscape where it's 6,000 different marketing companies, marketers really want best of breed. So often I remember a Forrester stat that said, your average marketer uses 15 different applications because they want sprinkler for social back in the day, right? Everyone wanted a little thing. But now that Adobe and Salesforce are so big 
and they have so much of the ecosystem from Adobe with Omniture now to Marketo to all their programmatic stuff they invested in in like 2010 or 20 something way back then. Then you've got Salesforce that kind of came from Sales Cloud. So they literally are the CRM now, right? So yes, you probably have a data warehouse, but your CRM that your sales teams are using, that is your customer, that now sits in Salesforce, but it's connected through Einstein, through MuleSoft, into your marketing cloud, into your call center. So it's that whole area is now consumed by, is your data pretty much in Adobe or is it in Salesforce? Or maybe a mix of both. And then that's all inside your firewall. So outside your firewall now is Google with 7 billion eyeballs, is TikTok with probably 10 billion eyeballs and counting, right? Is, is Facebook, um, Instagram. And let's not forget Spotify. We'll give them a shout out. that they, they, they got a sliver <laughs> of our ears. Um, and I think that's the fascinating thing is that if you come from that idea of consumer data being something that is your most precious asset as a company, and now a lot of that data is actually existing in these platforms that are just enormous, not necessarily regulated in the same way you are if you're a telco or a, or a bank or a retailer. Well, maybe not as much retail, but for sure a telco and, and banks. Oh my goodness. The, the world is a very weird place where it's pretty much all of the data around consumers and identity seems to exist in around seven companies globally, right? So so we're, I guess we're getting to the notion and just to to kind of preface this. So we're talking about what, you know, what used to be the process was these companies had worked really, really, really hard that spent, you know, millions of pounds and many, many years to go and try and acquire customer data so that they could market themselves more appropriately to you and so on and so forth. But now we're at the point where what you're saying is it's not only you that has that data, it's these other big tech players that have all that data and more, right? Is effectively. Yeah, but they also have it in a pattern. So this was a big debate I had when I was at IBM because I thought, yeah, they're getting all this data, but let's think about machine learning. Let's think about AI. And now let's think about the behaviors that they're seeing. Right. So one of the things that people really would like about the data, I think it, I want to say it's like shopper statistics. There's a cardlytics in like in the US. And I think there's another company. I forgot what it's called, but they would do all this stuff like what are the baskets certain profiles would buy? Yep. Um, well, now, if you think about it, I mean, we've seen elections literally swung by targeting in social media using psychoanalysis profiling. So if you don't think that they don't have the possibility to do it and in some cases think it's legal. Well, they have a hell of a lot of data. And depending on where you stand with Cambridge Analytica, the social dilemma, all the, the great hack. I mean, I don't know how many things I got to talk about now. Um, there's definitely a strong sense <laughs> that with enough data, you can predict with pretty good you know, certainty. Person with these attributes who's shown me these not only buying behaviors, but activity behaviors this is probably the things they'll be interested in doing. And this is how I can influence them to do whatever. So I think it's, it's a very scary, but great opportunity for data ethics, for, for thoughtful placement of ads, right? To work with our clients to say, do you want us to keep funding this? Or do you think you want to control that eyeball attention on your own platform rather than through someone else's? Do you want that insight? Okay. So I guess there you're talking about ways for organizations to go to these big tech players and start to buddy up, so to speak, to, to kind of get access to the data that they've got that they need ultimately. Yeah. 
So Google Ad Studio, for those of you who aren't maybe as familiar in this space, but Google, you know, Ad Studio, not Ad Studio, that's a Salesforce product, but I think it's like Google Ad Cloud or something, right? They, they've essentially, um, like Facebook, they, they've almost used GDPR as a point to kind of lock their data even tighter. And so in order to do any sort of analytics on the customer segments, you have to do it in their cloud, in their clean room. Uh, clean room might, might not even be the right word, but that felt very um, monopolistic to me to some degree. I was like, so I have to import the data that I have from other places into your Google cloud where you're telling me the attributes for the audiences, but I can't check and say, what are those attributes? Because there is no industry body regulating you and saying you have to, like with the credit bureaus, they're, there's, they're regulated, right? So they have to say, these are the things that are in there. These are you know a level of authenticity and correctness. Um, and so that's where there's been quite a bit. I was just reading a, a book where they said back in the day, Facebook was considering something an impression. If someone watched like, um, or clicked on something for like a second, I think it was even YouTube. It was like, oh yeah, your ad was seen for like a second. Is that really the kind of ROI, you know, a brand really wants, or is it you've yeah. watched it for 15 seconds or a minute or two minutes? You know, what, what there, there's a lot to be said for that and everything digital is measurable. So are you measuring it? So I, I know I kind of went on a couple different tangents there, but I think the interesting thing is for people who aren't really in the space, that's what the marketeers are dealing with. So if you're one of the folks who's built one of those data warehouses, who's trying to use all the Adobe and Salesforce stuff internally, there's a heck of a lot that's going on on other people's platforms before it even gets into your company that you want to make sure you're, you're kind of aware of what's going on over there and how does everyone partner up and, and bring that data together. Hmm. Hence, the CDP has become quite important you know, as a connecting place. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so that, I mean, that, that's a, a fascinating concept. So if we, if we take that idea then, you know, that you've got, I don't know, a bank or a retailer, whatever, and they can go to Google, they go to Facebook, they go to Instagram, whoever they want to go to. And they say, look, let's strike up a partnership. You give us what you've got. We'll pay you X, whatever that looks like. I, I wouldn't even, you know, even like to begin to fathom what type of numbers that would have to consist of to think about, you know, what that would take for, for those big tech players to, to kind of give into that. But um, I guess if we look at the implications, that the benefits, the challenges, you know, outcomes, costs, technologies, processes, how do they start to tie all that together? Is it is it as simple as it's just another data source or is there going to be so much more kind of that needs to be done from an organizational perspective to, to allow that to happen? Yeah, I think it's 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 quite a lot. It's quite a lot to digest, right? Because most of the marketeers that are probably aware of this are in like a, a digital team right? And they're working most likely with, it, with an agency like, like an iProspect or, or like one of the, uh, the you know, dense use competitors. And that's where there's, or Mighty Hive, I think with, with Martin Searle's S4, right? That's another one that started to grow. That's looking at this, it's kind of the tech that you don't own and you use, and then the tech that you do own and, and you use. So there's quite a bit happening there that, that I think needs to be more than just, let's say the digital team with the, the media partner. You really need to think about who owns the other parts of customer? Because e-commerce is another division that maybe isn't always connected to digital. You've got the other group that's doing brand, that's maybe running events, that's buying out of you know billboards, that they're buying TV spots. And oftentimes they're, they're connected under some strategy, but I think it's the people inside the companies that need to start discussing where are the pockets of our consumer data? What are the technologies it's in? And how do we actually work more as an assembly line 
so that we can assemble our bits of data together in a way that makes sense for our company. So there's still a lot there. And that's where I think that all, all organizations are going to have to use a combination of the, the tech providers, the media agencies, the consultancies like Deloitte Digital and Accenture Interactive. I mean, it's all, and then you need some people who are willing to ruffle some feathers and drive some change because the org models that we had in the past were really good for the way that we needed to behave. Whereas so much now is so much more digital. Um, that then connected to the physical supply chain. <laughs> it's just very complex, right? It's, it's, there's a lot of teams that need to come together in this process. Yep. So yeah, rather than giving you maybe an answer, it's more, these are the partnerships that have to happen yep. um, along the way. And there, there will be trade-offs, right? There will be some winners and some losers, but yep. that, that's, that's transformation for you. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I mean, it's a fascinating concept because as I said, if you, if you had a, I don't know, a banking organization that goes to Google, says, let's buddy up, you know, here's X amount of millions, billions, trillions, whatever it'll cost them. Um, and in return, we get access to this data that we need. That makes sense. And I guess, you know, it's going to cost them a lot of money. But then, as you say, the complexity comes in, how do you integrate that into the business, you know, across, you know, what every business has got loads of data, right? But it's all sporadic, typically all over the place, often, you know, siloed and, and so on and so forth. Um, well, the banks are also completing, Kyle, if you think about it, right, the, the, the banks have the FIDORs and the other kind of like, I don't want to call them completely fintechs, but, you know, you have the banks, especially with the open banking initiative that kicked in, you know, the banks like Lloyd's and I think RBS is now NatWest, if, if I'm following all the, the rebrandings correctly. But those are companies that, you know, have been around forever and the barriers to entry with regulation have been really, really high. But now you've got Metro Bank, you've got a few other ones, Revolut. So it's, those are just 100% digital, right? So, so what are they doing? Because they don't have the infrastructure that was necessary in the 1980s, 1990s. The whole, you can see how the industry, again, with the data being very digital, the more digital you are, the more you understand where people are coming from, what are they doing? Are you giving them the right products and services across your entire bank, right? So are you selling them wealth management? Are you selling them a savings account? Are you selling them a mortgage? And how do you make sure those divisions, which were all very separate, come together around that customer? And that's that's really the number one thing I would you know pass on in this uh, podcast is the thing that inhibits companies from being customer-centric is their org design. <laughs> And because what happens is people are in pillars where each PL has their group of customers. And except for certain areas where, I mean, in Germany, you can't even share information from one part of the retail bank to the insurance. It's like prohibited by law. Whereas I think in the UK, it, it, it's allowed, although it's, it's been a few years since I've been in that space. So if you have companies that have built up each their own consumer profile, and now you're trying to connect like an MDM system or a customer, you know, a CDP that doesn't really work well with the customer journey because you probably have like 15 to a thousand customer applications that have some part of the customer journey. And that's why it's just, it's a really big area to really rethink. How do you get that single view of customer through that journey actively yeah. from prospecting to conversion? Mm -hmm. to loyalty? Yeah. 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 I mean, it is amazing, isn't it? If you think about like taking the the bank example that you use, you know, all of the digital banks like the Revoluts and the, the Starlings and all of this that have popped up and 
just the speed that they're able to operate on in comparison to the traditional banks. I mean, I know when I set up the business here and I was looking at a bank um, and it coincided with me needing to, I think I needed to order a new card for me and the wife personally. And I was looking at, and I, I literally within 20 minutes went on Starling, downloaded the app, had a bank account within within 20 minutes, you know, passport check, you know, little video, say hi, who are you, all this stuff. Um, and But then it, it took like 10 days for, for one of the big banks to send me a debit card. <laughs> and I'm just kind of like, how how can these people, you know, how can they compete? It's just, it's crazy. Um, so I guess, obviously, what we're t- talking about and to kind of bring it back together on this then is, we're effectively using big tech players as a source to go and get customer data that you need, right? So something that's floating around in, in my mind, from a from a people standpoint, what does this mean for people whose job that traditionally would have been in an organization? If you know, if your job was part of the process of going acquiring customer data, um, but now we're talking about well, we'll just go and pay Google to give it us, does that wipe them out or? No, 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 I think I think that that's still a, a really important skill, and so I think the 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 savvy ones are already probably aware, and and maybe you know maybe the, the company you're in doesn't know that they need to do that yet, right? And so then do you then take on that mantle to get a little MVP off the ground to say actually I think there's something in this, right? Um, in other cases. I think it's probably actually not even going to the tech player, but starting to do that. Let me go division to division and find out how is marketing or, you know, even risk to some degree, how are they all using this data set? And that's where I think the use of customer data towards risk portfolio balancing is probably much stronger in, in, in certain areas. Whereas when you look on the consumer kind of delight and, and are we, you know, treating them the, the right way? Are we, are we personalizing their experience in a way that makes sense? Right. Because um, not everyone wants to be marketed to at such a level of one-to-one or one within 25. Maybe it's just like, you know, I like the New England Patriots football team. And so you somehow, you even just know I like American football. So you show me a, you know, an ad or you put some context around something to do with that. And that's really, it has a higher ROI uh, in, in kind of, you've, you've given me some indication that you know what I'm into. Hopefully you have reason to know that. <laughs> that it would make sense in the brand promise you're giving me right so nfl right so nfl game pass you know like the patriots so they're they're pretty good about right now being like so tom brady you know used to be in the patriots he's now hopefully leading the buccaneers to the uh the super bowl so it's quite interesting working again with ab and bev they have a huge relationship with music and with sports so working with them, it was very much around how do we kind of pair these things together? So going back to your question around consumer and getting the data, I think it is about what data is inside your company that can be used, you know, from one division to another, if allowed by law, to kind of help make that consumer experience good. Let's not forget about the risk side, because I haven't talked at all about that, but I'm, a, I'm in the marketing advertising, right? So I'm, I'm focusing on that lens today. And I think the other one is, like you said, it's it's kind of understanding, does your team working with your media agency, because they're the, the best proxy to the Googles and the Facebooks and could create that kind of opportunity for you to get that data, you know, what kind of conversations are you having? Mm. Are you aware of, you know, what data is available? What is the, the cost of that data? Or is it more about what audiences am I buying and how am I comparing that to my own data that I already own? But there's still a lot of interesting data sets that are out there. Um, what I would shout out on, 
is uh, Zeotap. I don't know if you guys have heard of them, but they, um, one of the guys who started it came out of Vodafone in Germany, where he knew that the, the telcos had a huge amount of data. But the idea was they couldn't use it really directly because it just there's laws and it's just uncomfortable. So if you actually aggregate all of that by phone number, but also by location, you can target people in a general area. And especially with, you know, where people live or, you know, maybe uh, especially now, right? how do we how do we kind of send the right advertising? How do we we build the right um, relationship? How do we distribute the right goods so that if people are going to buy a particular kind of rucksack, are there lots of people who look like Kyle in your neighborhood? by like maybe, you know, a hundred something kilometers, that that's actually where we're going to put most of our goods. Because yeah. the rucksack like this is bought here. So there's all sorts of ways you use that information to, you know, optimize the supply chain, but then also to back in the day or when we do get out of home again, you'll see probably some sort of digital advert at a bus stop, at a train station. And then again, obviously location-based advertising on your phone. It's huge. I mean, everything has advertising in it now, doesn't it? So yeah, for Netflix. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I guess, is there, in your eyes, is there a reason why businesses should not be considering this whole option of, you know, the, some of the partnership? I don't know. I don't even know what the, the correct terminology is here. So hopefully I don't get any trouble. But, um, you know, like the, the partnerships with the Googles, the Facebooks of the world, is that is that the future in your eyes? Is that where businesses need to be going to to kind of stay ahead of the curve because that's what's coming next and and if so is there a reason you know why they they wouldn't do that i think it you have to think about your so each organization right has to really think in their core of who they are and what they offer to their consumers or their customers whether it's b2c b2 b2c b2b whatever it is right you have to think to yourself is there a competitive advantage for me having that direct relationship with the consumer? Okay. Yes. All right. If it is, then how am I going to be relevant as one of the many, many, many platforms that exist for that type of engagement? Because we know the amount of time people spend on social media. We know the utility people get from Google being the gateway to the internet from Amazon being the gateway to you getting something that you maybe think is a commodity because you haven't gone to the brand website or a department store, you know, if, if those continue to exist. <laughs> if, <they perform. laughs> um, if you do think that your competitive advantage is from that direct to consumer, a direct to customer experience, then you better figure out how to make that relevant, how to make that stand out because we all know consumers are finicky. And if you can't deliver what the best of breed is delivering there, then is your investment going to get the ROI it deserves? Or do you need to try a different strategy to connect and you need to go through others? And then you will be the best that goes through others mm -hmm. because you thought of it first or you do it this way or whatever. So yeah. I think that's, that's why I'm just, I'm so excited about like the next two to three years to see which companies have are brave in really transforming what they are because the structures of before is what's been inhibiting digital transformation. People just having the inability to let go of that legacy. Um, and it's really hard. I mean, I was at IBM 10 years, you know, Gina Rometty 
had a lot of hard work she had to do to divest and transform IBM and Arvin's continuing that now. You know, there, there, there's a lot of work. It doesn't happen overnight and it's a huge commitment and it's a massive cultural change and people change and that that's not easy, right? So I think everything I've read from Gartner, from Forrester, from IDC is that many exec boards are putting their, you know, foot on the accelerator to transform, to be more digital now that COVID has made it very clear that they're either not doing it at all or what they did do wasn't nearly enough. So, you know, my advice to the data people listening to this, data digital people listening to this, like this is your moment. You know, you know one of the most critical assets that's out there. So how do you use this wave to, you know, contribute and, and be a great voice on data ethics, be another great voice on the importance of how data, you know, can't be in silos, like think about the things that you've learned in, in your life and how you make that more accessible and, and spend the time. If, if, if you haven't, um, you know, think about the, the provocation we spoke about, about the Adobe's, about the Salesforce, about the Google. Let me, I mean, I feel remiss. I didn't say Microsoft, but they're a huge player in this with Azure. They own LinkedIn, right? They're, they're massive. They're, they're everywhere. Microsoft office. Um, so there's, there's quite a bit going on there as well. Yep. Absolutely. Start to wrap this up then. And I'm just really curious. Do you think that, and, and I guess I've got my own thoughts on this, but do you think for those big tech companies, do you think this was always the play that we'd get to this point? Or do you think this is just something that they've realized, you know, hang on a minute, look at all this data we've got that these companies probably need, or, you know, we've got a more complete view of this customer than they have and they will need it. Um, so let's start maybe, you know, pushing that angle. Do you, do you think that's just something that's happened or do you think that's been like a strategic play? I think we've all seen enough Facebook-oriented movies that, <laughs> you know, you have someone who's computer science and psychology, I think double major, who built his entire business on advertising. There's no doubt in my mind there was an awareness of the data, right, and, and the entire model. And that comes, you know, we've been seeing that more and more. As for Google, I think they're a slightly different beast. Um, but then, you know, the YouTube and the other assets, DeepMind, there's really interesting stuff there. So I would say I'm, I'm not as quick to make a judgment there. Um, TikTok, you know, it's obviously coming from China. I have huge respect for, um, I think, the, the diligence and the investment uh, that, that, they're, that they make in, in technology. Um, but at the same time, it's that brings, as we saw again with Donald Trump and others, it brings a very interesting idea of state-controlled social platforms. You know that, I don't know if people have seen that, but that's, I, I think I've read that somewhere at least, you know, and it, that that brings a whole other dimension, let's say, to the topic. And then you've got obviously Amazon, and we know they started selling books, right? But now they sell everything. Um, and they're the ones who probably have been the most obvious in using priced, you know, priced uh, elasticity curves to basically charge different things to different people like the airlines do. Yeah. And I think that's the one thing, like maybe the end, right? The, the one thing that I, that I find interesting is a lot of people say, oh, I don't care if, you know, my data is out there that everyone knows about me and this and that. And I think the important thing to think about, and, and my big point before used to be, if you buy a liter of milk and it costs one pound, and your neighbor over there who maybe likes makes a little less more money than you or maybe doesn't like milk as much, it costs them 50p. And it costs you, you know, someone else that you, you know, don't even know down the street, um, it costs them two pounds. 
Does that bother you? Does it bother you that you're getting that you because from an economics perspective, you value that product at a certain level of utility or utils, as the economists say. So you should be perfectly happy paying more than someone else because that's how you value that. Otherwise, you won't buy it. And I think that usually gives some people pause. And I was like, how much information are you telling people? How price sensitive or insensitive are you? And have you ever noticed when you go to book a holiday on Ryanair or something else, if you use a different laptop, you get a different answer because of all the things in your cookie browser. Uh, and it's just fascinating. And I think the next thing, and this is the thing that really freaked me out. I was reading an article in the New York Times about how if you think about people on TikTok and people on social media, and I think it was either Channel 4 or BBC did a special on this two weeks ago of are people depressed or happier using social media passively or actively. The important thing to think about is if the feed that you're getting is organized by some sort of, you know, um, a rabbit hole AI, it can send you into a really unhappy place or into a happy place, at which point, if you're really happy, what is the trigger point? What are you going to do next? And, and do those platforms actually drive you to do something that you otherwise wouldn't if you weren't so euphoric or so unhappy? And I think that's where you have like QAnon and all this other stuff going on. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just crazy. So looking back again at the politics and watching that great hack, I mean, scared me. <laughs> yeah. um, but I think that's the real issue for all of us who know data and, and know data in the digital realm. We need to help people really understand, do you know the contract, GDPR or not, that you're entering into with these different players? And if you think it's harmless, I personally don't think it is harmless, which is why I think brands should take their control back and start owning the relationship with us or with companies like Netflix, right? That don't use advertising. They believe I will give you good content and you will come back to me. Yep. And so, um, so yeah, it's, but, I, but again, I, I, I think those platforms give a lot of people delight and happiness. So I'm not saying they shouldn't exist. I think we should just really think about, are they, yeah, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Well, Lauren, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. Very insightful, as um, as always. I guess if anyone listening has got any questions or wants to reach out, I guess, first of all, are you open to, to fielding kind of questions about this? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I yes, please, because I, I feel kind of fortunate with the, the experiences I've had and, and happy. Yeah. Hit me up on LinkedIn. Call my agent, Kyle. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so LinkedIn's the best place to get. Yeah, okay, perfect, fine. Well, uh, look, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for uh, for coming on. We uh, we'll have to try and do this again sometime, maybe maybe next year. Yeah. <laughs> All right. See you later. Yeah. That's it for this episode of Driven by Data, the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. I'll be back next week speaking with another thought leader from the world of data and analytics. Until then. Please follow Orbition Group on social media if you've not already done so, where you'll be able to subscribe and therefore be made aware of the podcasts as they arrive. And please share, like, and leave reviews so that more people from our industry get to hear and benefit from these too. If you've got any questions or you want to suggest ideas for topics or potential guests, then please feel free to reach out to me. Thanks for listening, and I'll be back next week.